So, uh, Hare Krishna, good morning, or afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. So, uh, today is April 5th, 2020. I'm still in Coronado. And we are going to read the Bhagavatam. Thank you for watching. So today we are going to talk about uh, or read about uh, Nardamuni, his childhood. We're going to get some interesting information about Nardamuni, uh, interesting information about his childhood, his mother, and actually we're going to engage in a bit of or attempt a bit of historical inquiry, and we're going to try to understand exactly who Narda's mother was, which is something which is. Not often done, but uh, we're not going to know everything about her, but we'll try to understand who Narda's mother was, or at least understand more about her than generally is understood. So, uh, Bhagavatam, first canto, chapter 6, text 1. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So the first verse of uh, chapter 6, first canto. Sutu Vacha Evang Nishamya Bhagavan Devarshir Janma Karma Cha Bhuyak Paprachatang Brahman Vyasa Satyavati Sutaha. So Sutta said, Evam thus, referring to what happened in the previous chapter, Evam nishamya Bhagavan devar share janmakarmacha. So Bhagavan here refers to Vyas. So in a sense, and then Vyas is mentioned in the last line, so it's saying that um, Lord Vyasa, really, uh, just like in, in Europe, they would call people Lord this or Lord, you know, Lord Apricrombie or Lord this or that. So here we have Lord Vyasa, Thus hearing Devarshir from the Deva sage. Uh, Narda is uh, categorized as a Deva, or we sometimes say demigod or divine being. So thus hearing from the Deva sage, Devarshi, Janma Karma Cha, or thus hearing about, actually thus hearing the birth and activities of the Deva sage from Devarshi himself, Lord Vyasa, who is Satyavati Sutaha, the son of Satyavati. I'm working on Mahabharata now and really trying to reconstruct a lot of the history of the Mahabharata, uh, connecting dots that are sometimes spaced out a bit. And so I talk a lot about Satyavati. Satyavati is a very important figure in the first volume of the Mahabharata I'm working on. So anyway, so Vyasa, Satyavati's son, Lord Vyasa, thus hearing about the birth and activities of Narada, Bhuya, again, Papracha, tongue, asked him, questioned him. So Vyasa has heard all this information about Narada, including his, uh, all this information. Now he's again asking him. He's again questioning him. So let's see what else Vyasa wants to know. So Vyasa Vacha, Vyasa said, Bhikshubir vipravasite, bhigyana deistri bhistava. So, uh, for those of you who study Sanskrit, this is locative absolute. So, when uh, 
uh, when the sages, when the bhikshus, uh, there were people that sort of beg for a living, but here it refers not to beggars, of course, but but great sages who have no material property and just travel around depend on the reciprocation of pious people. So bhikshu bir vipravasite, vipravasite means had departed, had set out. So anyway, in Sanskrit, literally, it's sort of a way of talking in Sanskrit, when it had been set out by the sages. For those of you interested in the language, that's literally what it says. When it had been set out, when it was set out by the sages. In other words, when the sages departed. And the sages who were Bhijana Deistri Bhistava. And Vyas says, those sages who had uh, who were your teachers of spiritual knowledge. Tava, your who were who were your teachers of spiritual knowledge. So Vartamano Vayasyade, at that time you were living or existing Vayasyadye uh, means in the first stage of life. You were going through the first stage of your life. You were a child. I'm giving you a very literal translation. When you were going through the first stage of your life, tatak, then, kimakarodhavan, what did you do? So here you've been essentially enlightened. Remember, Narada has not yet seen Krishna. That will come later. But he's... He's been very well taught. He's gotten a, uh, a very powerful spiritual education. He himself was already a, uh, an extraordinary five-year-old boy who was completely self-controlled, serious, uh, devoted to the sages and to this knowledge. Extraordinary, uh, precocious five-year-old. The sages enlightened him and they left. They're gone. The sages are gone. And you are still in the first stage of your life. First, so what did you do at that point as a five-year-old boy? He says, Swayambhuva. This is Vyasa addressing Narada, who is born from Brahma. Brahma is called Swayambhu, which means personally existing because uh, Brahma doesn't really have parents. He's just born out, except Vishnu. He's born out of the lotus flower that comes from the navel of Garbho Dakashai Vishnu. So because he's born from Swayambhu, the self-existing Brahma, therefore uh, Narada is called Swayambhuva, born from Swayambhu. So Kaya Britya, by what means, by what occupation, uh, by what activities, Varti Tante, uh, did you live? Parang Vayaha, in the later stage of your life. So he talks about Vayasyadye in the previous verse, in the first stage of your life, but then in the subsequent, in the later stages of your life, when you grew up, when you got older, how did you live? Like, what did you do for a living? Basically, he's asking. Uh, not only the sense of a job, but how did you live? How did you feed yourself? And how did you exist in this world? So Swayambhuva Kayabritya Bharti Tante Parangvaiha Katang Chedam Udasakshi Kale Prapte Kalevaram. And Kale Prapte, when the time came, when the time came, how did you give up this body? How did you because as we're going to see, I believe, the next verse, 
uh, Vyasa is aware that all this took place in a previous age. We're not talking about Narada's current life, he's, but in a, because he's saying, because in this life you're a Devarshi, you are a sage among the demigods. You took birth from the demigods, from from Lord Brahma. So if you say that you were born to this very simple lady, that must be in a, a previous age. So you were not Devarshi then. So what did you do for a living? How did you exist? And how did you give up your body when the time came? So that's a very literal translation of the Sanskrit. Prakalpa, so here he confirms, Vyasa Prakalpa Vishayami Tang Smritin Te Muni Sattama. So um, you have memory. Smritin Te means you have memory. You remember these things, you remember all these, your, this life, even though this subject matter, this life you're talking about, is prakalpa, it's from a previous age. So how is that? How is it that you remember all these details, little details of your life, when it happened in a previous age? Uh, not only a previous birth, but actually a previous age. So prakalpa vishayami etang smriting te muni sattama, O best of the sages, and nahi esha vyabhadhat kala esha sarva nirakriti. Now, he says this time, kala, this powerful time, vyabhadhat, and time is sarva nirakriti. Literally, time undoes everything. Because akriti, akriti can mean a form or a shape, the form of something. Uh, and uh, nirakriti literally means to kind of take something apart, to undo something. So here, time is called sarva nirakriti. It just literally takes everything apart. It undoes everything. Material. So this time which is, and it's interesting, he repeats the word Asia. So in Sanskrit, it kind of says like, indeed, this time, uh, this time that undoes everything, it did not remove, it did not erase your memory. Time undoes everything, but it didn't erase your memory of things that happened in a previous age. So Vyas is... Uh, Impressed by this, obviously. I mean, it is impressive. Narada is not an ordinary person. So, Narada Vacha, Narada is going to answer. And what's very interesting about this answer, and you find this sometimes in the Bhagavatam, is that someone will ask a question, and then the person answering will repeat all the words of the question, just literally repeat the question, which shows they were really paying attention, except instead of saying, uh, uh, Vyasa said, uh, for example, Vyasa Bibichubir Vipravasite Vigyana Desrivi Tava. When the sages who had taught you departed, and so Narada says, when the sages who taught me had departed, he repeats exactly the language. Uh, and then Vartamano Vayasyade, again, quoting from Vyasa's question, he's very word for word, he's repeating Vyasa's question, simply changing from your to my. 
Vartamano Vayasyade, because I was existing. In, in, I was living in a previous, in, in actually, Vayasyade in the first stage of my life. Tata Eitad Akarasham. And so, and so Vyasa said, then, what did you do? Then what did you do? And Nara says, then this is what I did. So he's repeating exactly Vyasa's question. It's very interesting, just changing from you to me. So Naruvacha Bikshubir, Vipravasite, Vigyana Deshri Bhirmama, Vartamano, Vayasyadye, Tataitarakarasam. So when you go into the Sanskrit in this way, you really get an idea of the personality and the culture of these people. So, Nard is going to explain how this, what he did, what he did when the sages left. He says, Ekad maja me janani. So, me janani, my mother. And janani literally means the one who gave birth to me. Janani. And, and if you're talking about a father that gives birth, of course, is Janaka, which is also the name of a famous king. So, Janaka janani, father and mother, literally means, you know, the man or the woman who gave birth to you. So my mother was she only had one child. My mother I was her only child. And now he describes his mother in a very interesting way. He says Yoshin she was a woman Mudha who was a Mudha now the word Mudha here's the feminine Mudha can mean simple, and Prabhupada translates it simple. Simple is kind of the nicest way to translate this word. The other meanings in the dictionary of mudha, in the feminine, are you know, like foolish or ignorant and so on. But, and so a nice way to say that is simple, like, okay, like she's a very simple person. So Narada's mother, also in, in uh, the previous chapter, when Narada first described her, he calls her a dasi, which, of course, means a maidservant, but it really, yeah, she was a Shudra lady. She was a Dasi. She was a Sudra woman. And Narada here calls her Mudha. In other words, she really had no education. This is what the word means. So Narada's mother was a Shudra woman with no education and, um, and really didn't know anything about the world. She knew, you know, she knew her little tiny village, that was about it. No idea of the world, no education, Shudra. And Kinkari, she was, which means a servant. Actually, the word Kinkara, which is the male form of servant, is a very interesting word in Sanskrit because Kinkara literally means, you know, like, what do I do? So a servant, that's what a servant asks. What should I do? And so the word Kinkara, what should I do, means servant. Lord Chaitanya uses this word in the Shikshasakur, Kinkara, Mam, he calls himself a kinkara. So it's a very humble word. I'm, I'm the servant of the Lord. And literally means a person who says, what should I do? Order me. So ekatma jame janani yoshin mudha chakinkari mayatma jayananya gato chakre snehanu vandanam. And so she created in me a, a, a an attachment she 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 bound me to her she wanted to she tied me to her through affection because ananya gato uh, she had no other means i was her child i was her only child 
she was this uneducated, sort of ignorant, serving woman, no other children. And in, in traditional cultures, uh, when you have children, you're very much conscious that when you get older, they have to take care of you. So, of course, hopefully parents love their children and take care of them because they love them. But also, uh, now, of course, uh, times have changed, but it's still a little bit. I mean, so especially simple people, obviously this woman does not have a bank account. She has no savings. There's no social security. She has nothing. She probably has literally a little hut she stays in, a little grass hut with a mud floor and she has a cow we know she has a cow and that's about it that is about it she probably does service here and there and you know people give her a few grains there's there's no money involved here so she really has nothing she she is living as basically as possible and so when you have a son naturally she's thinking that i have to take care of this boy because when I get older, what's going to happen to me? Who's going to take care of me? Well, he will. And so therefore, she carefully attaches him to her because Narda says she has, she's Ananya Gato. Uh, actually, Ananya Gato, uh, I'm sorry here, Ananya Gato uh, means that she knew that Narda has no other means. I mean, she has no other means, but she understands that Narda also, he has, he has nowhere else to go literally. And then you get to, he has nowhere else to go and she's counting on him and so she she, she tied him to her through attachment, through affection. She gave him lots of affection and made him emotionally or wanted to make him emotionally dependent on her. Which is not, I mean, I don't think we should look at this critically or she's a selfish woman. It's not like that. She has nothing else. Her son is all she has economically, in terms of affection. I mean, who else really cares about her in the world? And so both emotionally and you could say financially and even in terms of physically helping her, she has nothing else. And so she creates this attachment. She uh, creates this affection in him, binds him to her. So that that's Narda's situation. Uh, so, Sa, she, Aswatantra, who was uh, literally not independent, uh, she was uh, Swatantra. Tantra means sort of like means, like how you do something here. And Swatantra means self-sufficient. That's how you say self-sufficient in Sanskrit. Swatantra. You have your own means. And a swatantra means not self-sufficient. And so she was not self-sufficient. Nakalpa asid. Uh, she was not able. She, she was not able to, to get things or do things. Nakalpa asid. Yoga chemam mama ichati. So she, she was not able to even supply me what I needed. So mama of me, each of the, but, but she wanted to. So she's, she's a good mother. She's a very simple woman, but she's a good mother. She desires to provide everything her child needs. She just has no way to get it. And she's uh, not self-sufficient. And that's her situation. Uh, 
So it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's not an uncommon situation, unfortunately, in this world. So, the Narda just, now he's going philosophical. He says, well, you know, this world is under the Lord's control. Ishasya, literally. Indeed, this world is under the Lord's control. Ishasya hi loko. Josha daru jata. Just like a wooden doll. Just like a wooden doll. So, that is very interesting because the word yosha, of course, it is a feminine word. <clears throat> daru means wood, daru mai, mai means made of, so like a doll, a wooden doll, doll literally made of wood. But what's interesting here is that the word yosha, a doll, of course, also can mean a woman. And he, Narda has already called his mother yoshit, which is from the same root. So yosha, yoshit, you know, they're from the same root. And so he's called his mother yoshit a woman, and then he compares the whole world He's saying that the whole world is like my mother. Just like my mother is aswatantra, uh, not self-sufficient, literally, not self-sufficient, unable, even though desiring, unable, just unable to get things done, able to do things, unable to provide even the basics. And then Narda says, but my mother... Is, is really like a symbol of the world. I mean, this is a real history. Uh, this is really Narda's mother. It's not just a, it's not an allegory, a symbolic story, but real things in the world can symbolize other real things. So a symbol isn't always something which doesn't also exist in history. So Narda's describing this in a way, and you, of course, you have to pay attention to the Sanskrit. So this world, the whole world, is really like my mother, not self-sufficient, unable to get things because it's all under the Lord's control. Only Krishna can give us these things. So that's, it's a very powerful verse, actually, comparing his helpless mother to the helpless condition of everyone in this world because everyone is just under Krishna's control. So then Narada says, Ahamcha tad brahma kule ushivangs tad uh, so Narda says, and I, Ahamcha, and I, Ushivangs, lived in, in, in that Brahmakula, which is very interesting. Narda says he was living in a Brahmakula, which you can take to mean a, like a, uh, a Gurukula. Kula means family or community, so Gurukula means the Guru's community or the Guru's family. Because if you read the, the, uh, the Vedic literature, you find that young students, children, would actually live in the Guru's family. The Gurus were mostly householders, and they, you'd actually go and live in the teacher's family. Uh, actually, uh, uh, even in Europe, for example, uh, Jane Austen's father was a, the author Jane Austen, her father was a, was a minister in the Church of England, but also a teacher to make extra money. And he took on young boys and they lived in his house and he would teach them. So this was also, this was the case in Europe. It was also in, in, um, 
in India. Of course, in India, the weather is much milder, it's much warmer, so you don't need a big house and everyone lives inside because it rains all the time outside and it's so cold. So you could have just a, like a typical, even today you see in Mayapur, you used to see, now it's all getting built up, these little villages where there's just a, a perimeter and uh, just it's uh, earth, just the ground, of course there's no pavement, but it's very smooth and it's very clean. And there's these little huts, little straw huts, maybe with banana leaf roofs. And there's just an, and it's a little community. And so that was like a guru kula. It was a little community, literally a little family where you lived in the guru's little, not necessarily his hut, his cottage, but in his little community. So, uh, and that's, and Narda lived in a place like that. And of course, his mother was just a serving lady. His, his mother obviously uh, was not a student. And uh, in such communities, a, a woman who had no other way to survive would live there and get a little charity. They'd give her a little food or, um, you know, whatever she needed. And, and she would serve. She would clean. She would perhaps help. Well, not cook because the Brahmins like to cook for themselves. But she would just do things that needed done. Maybe carry messages, clean, you know, all the things that need to be done. Maybe help to rethatch a roof or, or repair something. And so Narda's living there in this... So in a sense, that explains why the sages that taught him stopped in that place because it was a good place for Brahmins. It was a Brahmakula. It was a Brahmin community or a school, as Prabhupada says, a Brahmin school. And um, although it's interesting because Narda is living in this Brahmakula, but he didn't learn from the Brahmins there, which is interesting. He learned about Krishna from the visitors, these sages who were traveling through and had to stop for the rainy season. Those are the ones that taught him about Krishna. He doesn't mention that he had learned anything where he actually lived. That itself is very interesting. And so, anyway, Nard is talking about his situation there, and he says, Dig Desha Kala no. I had no experience of Dig Desha Kala of the different directions. In other words, I had no idea what's north, what's south, or what is north. Okay, that's north, and if you go in that direction for a half hour, you come to another village. He had no idea. Desha, he didn't know what country he was in because he wasn't a country. There were kingdoms back then. And so he had no idea what country he was in. He had no idea where what you come to if you go this way or that way, north, south. He did, didn't know the directions. Time, he didn't know what time it was. Like, okay, you're living in a certain age right now. You are historically situated and there's previous history or what yuga it is. No clue. Nard is basically saying here, I was totally clueless. I had no idea what historical time I was in. I didn't know what country I was in. I didn't know what direction, like, you know, compass directions. No idea. Balaka, he says, but I was just a little child. And so Bala means a child, and, and Balaka means a little child. He said, I was a little five-year-old child. Balaka Panchahayana. Punch is five, high in means years. I was, just, I was just a little boy, five years old. So that's Narada's situation. And uh, then, Ekada Nirgatang Gehad Duhantin Nishi Gam 
Pati. So once, Prabhupada translates it once upon a time, da, the ending da in Sanskrit indicates time, like yada is at which time, like yada, yada, when. So which time? Tada, at that time, and ekada, at one time. So one time, an artist says literally one time, uh, when my mother, uh, Nirgatang, went out, Gehat, from the house. Geha is the same as Griha, it means house. So one time, my mother went out of the house, Duhanting, uh, Nishi, Nishi means at night. She went out of the house at night, Duhanting Gang Pati, milking the cow Pati, on, so then something happened on the path to the cow. Now, of course, to be precise here, if we are going to be trying to reconstruct some historical details, uh, it's not even clear that this was her cow. Because Brahmins had cows, we know that was kind of like a gift of choice to Brahmins. You gave them a cow because that was, they could live off a cow. They would get milk, they, you know, or, or they, they could make butter and ghee for their fire sacrifice. And they could drink the milk, all kinds, you know, they could live on it. And so giving a Brahmin a cow was like, nowadays you'd give them like a monthly income. Like, okay, I'll give you, you know, like $300 a month or $500 a month or $1,000 a month. That's how you gave a Brahmin a, a regular income. You just gave him a cow. And so we don't know whether this cow belonged. Narada doesn't say that it belonged to his mother. It was just a cow. So... If a Brahmin had a cow, then this is typical that a some serving lady might milk it for the Brahmin. And so, you know, the cow is sort of making noise, it needs to be milked, and so she went out at night. It's night, and they don't, you know, there's no street lighting there. There's no street lights here. And if it's the dark moon, it's, you know, you can't see anything. So that's the point. It's Nishi at night, his mother... Uh, can't see because it's night. You can't see very well. She just knows where the cow is because she grew up there. So one time, uh, my mother went out of the house. So they had to have a little dwelling. They had some little cottage. Uh, literally milking the cow at night. That's the way, just a simple way of saying she went out to milk the cow. She went out milking the cow at night. And so Pati, on the path, on the path there, Sarpodashat Pada Sprishtaha. So the Sarpa, from which we get obviously the English word serpent, Sanskrit Sarpa. So the Sarpa, the serpent, Sprishtaha, touched Pada by her foot. That's just a Sanskrit way of saying she stepped on the snake, which is uh, really what you do not want to do. So the, the snake bit her. So she goes out at night to milk the cow. She steps with her foot. It says touched. This, literally, it says a serpent was touched by her foot. But she steps on this serpent. The serpent bites her, of course. Kripanang, he says, and, and Narda says here, this poor lady. So Kripana can mean miserly, but it also means just someone in a wretched condition. So he's just, so in, in Sanskrit, what Narda's really saying is, and this, this you know, being stepped on, the serpent bit this poor woman. That's really what it means in Sanskrit, that the serpent bit this poor woman. 
And the serpent was kala choditaha. The serpent was moved by or impelled by or driven by uh, time, destiny. In other words, destiny drove the serpent to bite her. It was, Narada saying, this was all meant to be. This is just somehow fate, destiny, this is what was supposed to happen. So he says that. And for those of you who chant Gayatri, you will recognize the word Chodita. Uh, chodita, from, and, and there's, or Prachodita. It just means, anyway, if you know Gayatri, you, know, you should know what I'm talking about. So, uh, impelled by time or driven, driven by time or by destiny. Time here also means destiny. It means destiny. Prabhupada says influenced by supreme time. Kala is, is also a way of saying, because time, don't, re, don't forget that time in Sanskrit doesn't just mean like what time is it? You look at a clock or, in a, you know, in those days maybe a, 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 a sundial or an, you know, an hourglass or something. Time just doesn't mean measuring time. It means destiny. It means time is a powerful force of Krishna. Don't forget in Bhagavad Gita, uh, when Arjun says to the universal form, who are you? Kobavan, who are you? Ugra Rupa, in this terrifying form. And, and Krishna answers, Kalos me, time I am. Lokaksaikra, destroyer of the worlds. So time is a, is a powerful force of God within nature. And so therefore to say that the serpent was driven by time, it means destiny, by the will of God. It's a way of saying uh, driven by the will of God, to driven by destiny, the serpent, Sarpa, bit this poor woman, as Narda describes her, bit this poor woman. And also saying Kala Chodita means that she's going to, she dies, because Kala means time got her. That, it, it's also in Sanskrit, a way of, a sort of poetic way of saying that someone died is, for example, they'll say uh, that uh, Kala Tiagat, that time overcame someone. So to say that time overcame someone uh, means they died. And so to say that uh, the serpent was driven by time also means that she died. Her time, or as we would say in English, her time had come, right? If you say her time had come, what does that mean? Literally, it doesn't mean she died, but that's what it means, you know, her time had come. So that's the same thing here in Sanskrit. So, and then Narda tells what he did. So he does mean that she died. He doesn't say her time, he doesn't say, you know, the serpent driven by time bit her and she died because that language he used means that she died. So Narda assumes you understand that she died and now he's going to go on and say, what did I do next? So he says, Tada, uh, then... Tad aham isasya bhaktanam sham abhipsataha. So then that, uh, well, the verb here is manyamanaha, the third line, considering or thinking, like the word manas mind. So manyamana means thinking. Thus thinking or thus considering or thus concluding that this event, the death of my mother when I was five years old, thus considering or deciding or concluding, that's what it means, that that was the mercy of the Lord. 
It was the Lord's mercy. Ishasya anugraham. And the word anugraham, which means mercy, it's a very common word in Sanskrit, and anugrahita uh, means someone that, who has been blessed or given mercy. Anugraha literally means one who has been taken along. Graha in Sanskrit uh, is similar. We have English from that. It means grasp or grab or take. Graha. It's just like grahas are planets that kind of you know take you under their power. So, so graha means grasp or take, and anu means along. So, so the Lord took me along. In other words, he brought me to a place that was good for me, and therefore the word anugraha means mercy. So deciding or considering, thinking that this is the Lord's mercy, because after all, the Lord is bhaktanam sham abhips ataha, the Lord who strongly wishes, who, who strongly wishes the good for his devotees. So Narada is indicating here that he's a devotee now. <clears throat> he heard from these great sages. He, he joined the Hare Krishna movement uh, in, the, in a sense when these sages were there. He was a five-year-old boy. He had nowhere to go. He couldn't leave at that time. There was no you know, Hare Krishna temple to join. But uh, And it's very interesting. He lived, he says, in a Brahmakula, in a Brahman community, but he doesn't say that after those sages left, well, I just started going to the spiritual programs with the local Brahmins. Uh, because if that Brahmakula, if that Gurukula or Brahmakula, if it had been a Vaishnava place, he would have said, well, when the sages left, it's obvious what I did. I just started going to the programs or I started chanting with the devotees there, the, the, the Brahman devotees. But no, he doesn't say that. In fact, to find God, as we're going to see, he has to leave that place. So he's in a Brahman community, but all, again, this is the way you reconstruct history. He's in a Brahman community, but there's no indication it was a Vaishnav community. And so Narada says that the Lord strongly wishes, Abhip Satham, uh, the good, the good for his devotees, and therefore, because of that, I was thinking, he doesn't say, I thought. All these details I find very interesting. He doesn't say, I thought that. He said, I was thinking that. And so the very fact that Narada uses the present participle here, you know, I was thinking, means that he's thinking about it. It's not that just a thought came to him. Okay, this happened, and I thought, well, that's probably Christian's mercy. No, he's thinking about it. This is a process. He's thinking about it. He's thinking that... This is the Lord's mercy because, because the Lord strongly desires the good for his devotees. So he's thinking about it. His mother died. He's a five-year-old boy. And suddenly, I don't know if he heard a scream. I mean, you know, you have to put yourself back there. Did he hear, did his mother scream when she was bitten by the snake? I mean, that's, you know, she might have cried out. And then he runs out and he sees his mother just dying there. Did he actually watch his mother die? So this is, or perhaps he just slept through it. Perhaps his mother, you know, was shocked because you can go into shock and she maybe just fell over. And then, but, but imagine, he gets up in the morning perhaps and, and, you know, where's mom? His mother's not in the cottage, where's mom? Well, maybe she got up earlier than I did, he goes out and there she is lying dead. And so, this is serious, 
this is serious here. And so how does he react? He's five years old. He's such an advanced devotee. He knows that, well, Krishna always does what's best for his devotees. He's basing his reasoning on that fact. So do we do that? His first point is, Krishna always wants what's best for his devotees. So he's going to reason from that understanding. And therefore, this must be the Lord's mercy on me. Because everything Krishna does is for our good. So this must be his mercy. And again, I mean, I take this as very interesting. The verb is not I thought, but manyamana. He's thinking about it. He's going through a process. Well, and it, I don't know how long it took him, but, you know, it's shocking. He has to think about it. He has to really process it, as we say. And then he concludes this Krishna's mercy because everything Krishna does for his, in his devotee's life is always for their good. And so what does he do? I've got to get out of here because it's very interesting. He, um, he doesn't, he has, I mean, he doesn't even consider for a moment that maybe I should stay here in this, in this Brahmana community. No, he has nothing left there. He was, you know, his mother was attaching him to her. Now that his mother's gone, there's nothing to hold him there. There's nothing he wants in that place anymore. Maybe he has no friends. The Brahmins themselves may just see him as this low-class person that maybe, you know, spent too much time hanging out with Vaishnavas. Whatever they thought about him, he's, so he just immediately says, I thought about it, I was thinking about it. Pratishtam, I left, I departed. Pratishtam. And he left Dishamutaram toward the north. Now, it's very interesting because Narda said just a few verses ago that he didn't know the directions. He said, Digdesha Kala. He didn't really know so much about the directions, but here, so maybe he went to the north and just, you know, asked somebody and someone told him you're going north. But however, he heads north. And that's very interesting. He heads north. We don't know exactly where he lived. He doesn't tell us. But he headed north. He just immediately, I'm out of here. He left. So Narda leaves going north. Read maybe one more verse. And actually, maybe we'll save that for the next time. Because basically, he he wants to see God's creation. He's going to engage in a type of uh, self-realization or God consciousness by going out and exploring the Lord's creation. And... Uh, this is, was, of course, in the Renaissance, this is popular because in the Middle Ages, it's like you want to know about God, uh, not read the Bible, you weren't allowed to unless you were a priest. Listen to the priest, the priest will tell you. And so then with the Renaissance and, and, and renewal of interest in this world, uh, people started to uh, explore the world. And of course, that leads to a scientific revolution. So Narda wants to see the world. He wants to understand the creator by seeing the creation. And so we're going to uh, talk about that next Sunday. Now let's see what questions there are. There's some Facebook questions here. Uh, How can we distinguish between Krishna's guidance and our mind speaking? Uh, Well, the Bhagavatam says that in this age, Lord Chaitanya's movement is uh, you have to be intelligent. And you need a specific kind of intelligence, which is self-knowledge. 
if we are too wrapped up in our own fantasies or if we are in illusion about ourselves because of either pride or low self-esteem, some people are too proud and so they can't see themselves clearly. Some people have low self-esteem and cannot see themselves clearly. So if you have too much pride or too little self-confidence, then, or if, or if one is too lusty, sometimes, for example, we see the Sahaja tendency, we see in many bogus gurus, and unfortunately sometimes uh, devotees who uh, fall down, that uh, one can have such strong material desires that, let's say, for example, here's an example that took place uh, last few years. There was a guru, not in Iskand, very strong material desires, lust, and uh, convinced himself, apparently, and uh, young female victims that his sexual abuse of them uh, was somehow Krishna conscious, that you know somehow Krishna has arranged this. And so if our desires are too strong, we convince ourselves that the sense gratification that we cannot give up, the sense gratification that we just want so badly is somehow Krishna's arrangement. And so too much pride, too little self-esteem, your desire is too strong. These are the things that will lead one to delude oneself about what Krishna really wants for you. And therefore, our prayer should be, as Prabhupada said, we should beg Krishna to make clear to us what will please him, what his desire is. So Narada took his mother's passing as a blessing. How can we also see unfortunate events as Krishna's blessings so we can focus more on our spiritual life instead of focusing on the suffering? Well, first of all, if we are suffering, if something happens in our life and it's not that we want that, and I certainly don't want it for anyone else, but uh, if something does happen and we're suffering, the very fact that I'm suffering shows that I had a material attachment because if I didn't have a material attachment, why am I suffering? So the suffering itself reveals my attachment and because I'm suffering, that's the, it, it's like, you know, nature balances itself. It's like a pendulum. So if you try to enjoy, you go all the way this far, so, so to speak, so many degrees of material enjoyment, the pendulum's gonna go exactly the same distance uh, to the other side. So however much sense gratification, you can bet your bottom dollar, you know, you can bet it, you can bet your life on this, that if I try to enjoy the material world, let's say here's the center, this much, I'm going to suffer that much, go to the other side. The, the middle point, the point of equilibrium, the point of rest here, is exactly what Krishna calls being equipoised. Equipoised means you're not swinging to the sense gratification side, you're not swinging back to the suffering side, you are materially in balance, equipoised, at rest, which is also what Krishna calls in the Gita, we talked about that last night in the Spanish class, uh, yukta, yuktahara, being moderate in your eating and sleeping. So it means that you don't go to an extreme, eat too much or too little, sleep too much or sleep too little, because, because the extremes are unstable. If you are in an extreme position, it must swing back, again, past the center, you know, wave to the center as you fly past it, because you're going to the other extreme. You keep swinging back and forth. 
And so Krishna in the Gita, when he keeps talking about be equal, be steady, he's, that's what he's talking about in terms of how we deal with our material propensities, be equipoised, steady, stable, in the center. And so, um, so therefore, if I'm suffering, it means I went too far to one side, I, my attachment. And so the suffering is a way, it, it, all it is, it, it's the pendulum trying to find balance again. Because when the pendulum is swinging back and forth, it's, it's really kind of looking for the center, a position of rest. So when we suffer, we're just, it's, it's a reaction to our attempt to enjoy through bodily attachment. So I was thinking the, anyway, the analogy be, between Narada's and Dhruva's history. Yeah, they're both five-year-old self-realized souls. In some way, Dhruva's mother was so much fortunate. It's a very good comparison, actually, between, it's very good between Dhruva's uh, mother, who was, a great devotee and Narada's mother, who was very you know didn't really know what was going on. So Dhruva's mother was so fortunate she was able to directly see her son's great spiritual success and could have a direct benefit from it. That's because she's the one who, in a sense, set her on her way. She was his first guru. But Narada's mother died alone and in a painful way. Uh, some comment. Well, first of all, as far as dying alone. Uh, she didn't spend a lot of time alone. I mean, she was bit, the snake bit her and she died. I mean, I don't think she just, I mean, some snake bites, you really go very quickly or you go into a shock. And so I don't think she was lying there on the road in agony for hours. So she she probably literally hardly knew what hit her. I mean, it, it was dark. She, she didn't see the snake, obviously. Suddenly she felt something, a sharp prick on her foot. And then she might have just passed out. So she, it might have been a, a relatively painless death. So yes, as far as Narda and Druva, they had very different mothers and very different paths of self-realization. But they're both great souls. And so, you know, Krishna, every one of us, I think the conclusion from this is that every one of us has our own unique relationship with Krishna and a unique path. So obviously there's a lot of things we all do. Hopefully we all chant Hare Krishna. We all offer our food. We all try to hear about Krishna. But in other ways, each one of us is unique and Krishna has a unique path for each of us. So therefore, a real secret of bhakti yoga is surrender to the path that Krishna has for you. Don't fight with Krishna, as uh, Jambavan did in the 10th canto. How much can we interfere with Krishna's plans? Uh, Krishna, well, most of the time he won't force you. We have to accept Krishna's plans. If you in your life at some time, cried out to Krishna or prayed to Krishna, please save me, please protect me, please take care of me, then even if later you, you know, you or I, or, you know, we have kind of a crazy moment, Krishna may argue that, well, when this person was lucid, when this person was in their good consciousness, this is what they said they wanted. It's like, for example, let's say you sign one of those legal documents that if I'm ever let's say, medically unable to think properly and maybe someone's in a coma or someone's crazy because of a disease, this is what I want to be done medically. And so legally, if, uh, let's say, a person does fall into that situation where they are crazy or unconscious or something or just whatever, then the law dictates that the document you signed, the will you legally expressed, uh, 
when you are in your right consciousness, that is what is, that, that will be done. Not what you're saying when you're crazy with a fever or you're in a coma. We don't say anything. So, in the same way, if when you are lucid, if when you are in your proper consciousness, you tell Krishna, this is what I really want for my life. I really want you to protect me. Then, if later you are temporarily crazy, for whatever reason, like, you know, lust, greed, pride, crazy, Krishna is going to go ahead and do what you asked him to do when you were sane, when you were in your proper consciousness. So that's the analogy. So it's really, Krishna's plan is really a reciprocation with us. Krishna does not completely ignore who you are, what you want, and just force upon you some plan he has. Krishna's plan is a reciprocation with you. And uh, so, yeah, let's give Krishna a break here. So when a guru leaves the body, it must be very painful for disciples. Uh, yes, I, it is, but I know in my own life, I don't. I hope I'm not, uh, you know, feelingless. But when my own life, Prabhupada always emphasized to me service and separation. So, of course, when I was with Prabhupada, he was very kind and 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 fascinating, and, and but um, but he always emphasized to me: do not simply see the guru in an external way. And so, uh, in a sense, Prabhupada prepared me for years. He prepared me for his departure. So, of course, uh, one engages in spiritual lamentation, not material lamentation. But, um, but I strongly felt that Prabhupada had not left. And that I knew when Prabhupada left that my life, and well, maybe externally it was going to change, but in terms of the purpose of my life, in terms of what I'm going to do with my life, that hasn't changed I'm going to be with Prabhupada and I'm going to try to serve him and serve his mission. So I had this strong sense that uh, it, I'm going to just continue serving Prabhupada. So how can disciple overcome that pain? By, uh, you overcome that pain by associating with your guru. Because the pain comes from not being with your guru. But if you are if you dedicate your life to the Guru's mission, then you are with the Guru. And even keep the connection. There's one way to keep the connection with the Guru after his departure. You've, you've got to do what the Guru wants, which is to serve. Serve the mission. You know, Try to be a good devotee. So Prabhupada, uh, of course, you know, he, he loved his Guru in, as only a pure devotee can love his Guru. And yet, in... in you know, Prabhupada didn't talk very much. I mean, he wrote a poem that when you left, I gave out a cry. But if you think of Prabhupada, when he talked about his guru, he never really talked about his pain or how much he suffered when his guru left. Uh, he, because he was with his guru. Prabhupada once wrote a letter, which I read myself, saying that you're not really seeing the form of the guru. He said, we see the external form, but the guru is actually a spiritual person. And, and Prabhupada even said, it's like you, when the wind blows, you see the uh, clouds moving across the moon, but it's an optical illusion. It looks like the moon is moving through the clouds. And so he said, in that way, you're not seeing the real movements of the guru. So uh, the best way to overcome the pain of losing, let's say, the external form of the guru is 
don't lose the guru. Don't be separated from the guru. Keep yourself very strongly connected to the guru by, by doing the right thing, by serving. Because that's where the guru is. The guru is, oops, sorry, this little device fell over. The guru is located at the lotus feet of Krishna. That's why, for example, Prabhupada is called Prabhupada. That's where, that's where Prabhupada is. He's at the feet of Krishna. Hopefully his faithful followers are at his feet. They're, they're by at the feet of Krishna. Things equal to the same thing or equal to each other. Aristotle. So, um, and so therefore we, it's, it's all about service. Okay, I actually have to do another service right now, and this has been a long class, but I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you all uh, very much. And so um, I hope I'll see you next Sunday, and uh, thank you very much for listening. It's, um, I hope you're encouraged by the class, and I'm certainly encouraged because you listen to it. So, Hare Krishna. <laughs>